Eufy is sponsoring today's video. They reached out to me. I tested out their video lock. It is a game changer. I'm going to paint a picture for you for why I'm so excited to work with them. So you're getting home. Your arms are loaded with groceries or packages or boxes or everything. And your keys are in your pocket. This drives me nuts. This happens all the time. I upgraded to the Eufy video lock. Fingerprint tap i'm inside and honestly i also feel way safer it's got this awesome built-in camera so whether it's a package delivery or late night uber order i see exactly who's there right from my phone there are no more mystery knocks and the best part this thing was such a breeze to set up there's no wires there's no drilling uh, there's also no monthly subscription fees so if you are done fumbling with your keys because i definitely am search for eufy video lock or head over to eufyofficial.com slash video lock your front door, your sanity. Welcome to Success Story, the most useful podcast in the world. I'm your host, Scott D. Clary. The Success Story podcast is part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. The HubSpot Podcast Network has incredible podcasts like the Salesman Podcast hosted by Will Barron. Now, if you work in sales, you want to learn how to sell, or you want to peek at some of the latest sales news and insights, you need to listen to the Salesman Podcast the host, Will Barron, helps sales professionals learn how to find buyers and win big business in effective and ethical ways. If you think any of the following topics resonate with you, you're going to love the show. How to find and close your dream job in sales, 12 essential principles of selling, digital body language, how to have better Zoom sales meetings, or how to tell a remarkable sales story. If these are topics that would interest you, go check out the Salesman Podcast wherever you get your podcast or at hubspot.com slash podcast network. Today, my guest is Russ Heddleston. He is the co-founder and CEO of DocSend. Now, previous to DocSend, uh, Russ did a few different things. He was a product manager at Facebook. He ended up at Facebook because Facebook acquired his first company, Pursuit.com. He also held roles at Graystripe and Trulia. He sold DocSend to Dropbox for $165 million in 2021. He holds an MBA from Harvard and an MS in computer science from Stanford. So what did we speak about? We spoke about his journey building DocSend, how he ideated the first concept of DocSend and how he found that product market fit. Uh, so we spoke about his startup strategy, then starter, startup strategy in a broader context. We spoke about fundraising tactics that lead to investment uh, inside the venture capital market, insider advice on investors and investment management, uh, founder opportunities, obstacles, and successes. We spoke about product-led sales strategy, acquisition insights, and basically everything that he went through in both Pursuit.com as he built that and sold it to Facebook, as well as DocSend that he built and then sold to Dropbox. So let's jump right into it. This is Russ Heddleston. He is the co-founder, CEO of DocSend. Sure. So I'm uh, from South Dakota originally. There's not a lot of tech there. There's a lot of farming, a lot of great people. But you know, I didn't. I didn't grow up in tech. I didn't grow up with computer science. And then uh, I got out to Stanford. Was very fortunate to, to get in there and study electrical engineering undergrad. Studied computer science uh, for for a master's degree. But I got into tech there just because there's so many startups out of Stanford. And I, you know, I graduated high school in 2002. I graduated college 2006. And you know, at the time there was like, the, there's still the dot-com bust. Everyone's like, oh my God, all the engineering jobs are going to get outsourced. There's, there's nothing there. And I was like, I want to study computer science because it's fun and interesting. And so I did that and I got to work at some awesome places. I interned at Microsoft uh, in undergrad as a product manager, interned at uh, Trulia when they were like six people or four people. Pete and Sami had just started it uh, as a software engineering intern there. Uh, when I graduated from Stanford, I went and worked at a mobile ad network called Graystripe. It was like seven people. I was like, I want to go work in startups and had an awesome experience, learned a ton, ended up like running the engineering team, which I wasn't qualified to do at all. But, you know, you get battlefield promotions and startup land as a thing that happens. And then uh, I went back to business school out at Harvard, mainly because I just wanted to go learn some of the business side of things. Wasn't really sure if it would have like an ROI, but I just thought it'd be a fun life experience. And interned at Dropbox that summer when there were like 16 people. I've had a habit historically of just things Man, I like, I'll track down. Stage. 
Yeah, uh, yeah. Nice I mean, you, you see products you like, they make sense. You track them down. A lot of times they end up being successful. Um, the intern there uh, decided I wanted to start my own thing. So started a company called Pursuits. Um, it was my first go around. I had two co-founders who also worked at Trulia and are awesome people. And we raised a seed round, did it for about a year and then realized it wasn't going to work. So we either had to pivot uh, or pivot. That was, that was our option, pivot. Uh, and so as we were shutting down our product, uh, Facebook was an early user. They said, Hey, come here. Like we, we'd love for you to work on some, some stuff for us. And so interviewed that Facebook and LinkedIn went to Facebook. And so that's what I would call like a talent acquisition, um, which is a great outcome for, for, you know, uh, for us at the time and ran product for the pages team, uh, at Facebook for a couple of years, got to see Facebook go public and then decided I wanted to go try again. And my two co-founders at Docsend, we all went to undergrad at Stanford together. We all worked at Graystripe together. And so Graystripe had been acquired. They left. And, you know, it's a lot of times people ask like, oh, how do I find a co-founder? And it, it, it's hard. You know, there are people you've worked with before and you like working with them. You, you keep in touch. And if you get a chance to work together again, those, those things happen pretty rarely. So, you know, I left a lot of money on the table at Facebook and it was a wonderful place to, to work. And I learned a ton there, but I wanted to go try again. So we started Docsend in 2013. And um, ran it for eight years, almost exactly, and ended up selling it to Dropbox in March for 165 million. And we raised only 15 million for Docs. And uh, a topic I'm happy to get into is, you know, you know how, how much to raise, when to raise, you know, yeah. is that the metrics? I, I always told our, our company at, at Docs and that, you know, we don't keep score based on headcount or dollars raised. We keep score based on just building a great company. Uh, and so we saw a great fit with Dropbox. And so now I am working at Dropbox. And continue to work on on Docsend, but you know, so that, that's kind of the the story to date as it is. Not bad, man. Not bad. I can, I you know, um, you, you say it so casually, like we just sold it for a hundred, what one sixty? What was it? One sixty five? One sixty five? Yeah, one sixty five. It's, it's not, one of those things. Bad, where I, I feel proud of it because it, it, they bought a real company. Like we were profitable yeah. at the time of acquisition, growing really, really fast. Figured out a lot of really interesting things. Um, so anyway, yeah, it was, it was, it was a good acquisition for, for Dropbox and a, and a great outcome for the team. Did you, you, you were like going to Stanford, you were like, I'm, I'm gonna build my own thing. That was always it. There was no other, other career path for you. Oh, absolutely not. No. And I still don't really think of myself as like an entrepreneur in the sense of like, some people are like, oh, I just, at the age of four, I knew that's what was going to be my path there. I don't know. Some people have these origin stories where I'm like, good for you. I wish I had clarity at a young age. I feel like I often still don't have any clarity. Uh, no, I had no idea what I wanted to do in, in college. And, um, you know, I, I kind of, you know, ran around looking at like, oh, who would employ me? And so like a lot of people out of Stanford go work in management consulting. And so I had a bunch of friends at McKinsey. And I actually went through and I was very fortunate to get an offer from McKinsey out of, out of Stanford. And I remember being at cell dinner and kind of seeing all the managing directors kind of like bragging about business school and stuff like that. And just trying to think about it. And I was like, oh, I just think startups are fun. There's just they so much fun. uncertainty there. Who knows if it's going to work? I was like, you always get a good story out of it. It's a accelerated pace of learning. So, you know, I did the real risky thing because I had uh, other offers from big tech companies as well. And I went and joined a, you know, seven person startup because my mentor had just done their series A. So I knew they had funding. I liked the team. I thought it was a smart space to be in. And it was, they had a really good value prop and a really good idea. They ended up being the number two to add mob. And so, you know, it was an interesting case study and like some spaces are a winner take most. So, you know, Graystripe still good outcome. Uh, but it was it wasn't ad mob, but it was for me an awesome learning experience. So uh, having observed a few different startups, I wanted to try myself. And so I don't necessarily think of myself as an entrepreneur, although the <laughs> kind of joke is amongst my friends who are entrepreneurs as well. Like, you know, you, you start a company, there's a there's there are definitely low points. It's really frustrating. And then typically what you're most qualified to do is start another company at the end of it, if you have an exit or whatever happens. So uh, it's probably what I'm most qualified for. But as an entrepreneur, you end up usually being a jack of many trades is kind of the skill set, especially early on that helps helps kind of get done whatever whatever needs to get done. I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Shopify. And don't you love that sound? That's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. See, Shopify gives entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for big businesses. So upstarts, startups, and established businesses alike can sell everywhere, synchronize online and offline sales activity, 
and effortlessly stay informed. You can not only sell your product, but you can reach customers online and across social media networks with an ever-growing suite of channel integrations and apps, including Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and more. You can gain insights as you grow and detailed reporting of conversion rates, profit margins, and beyond. Whatever you need to track, Shopify can track it for you. And remember, Shopify was built to liberate commerce for entrepreneurs and big businesses alike. Shopify is tirelessly reinventing tools of growth and scale for over 1.7 million businesses. So if 1.7 million businesses trust Shopify to help them organize their online and synchronize with their offline sales, you should be able to use it for your business as well. Connect with your customers, drive sales, manage your day-to-day, accept all major payment methods, and integrate with any third-party app you could possibly think of. If you want to try out Shopify right now, go to shopify.com slash success story. That's all lowercase for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash success story right now. Remember, success story is all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash success story. So how did your how did your process for this? So, okay, so you've worked in startups. You want to you want to start something. So walk me through your the mental the mental process that you went through in in determining what you wanted to build out? How did you even ideate on first startup, second startup? What was that? Yeah, sure. And one thing I also say about myself is like, I think historically I've been pretty impatient in many ways in my career, uh, leaving too soon or, you know, as at Facebook, I was like, oh, it's already too big. <laughs> you know, it, it clearly wasn't. Um, or, you know, I, I you know, everything funny. needs to move faster and, you know, you know, those sorts of things. And, you know, there's there's a lot to be said for patience, like the more years of experience I have. Um, the, the, the first startup, um, pursuit, we we wanted to solve a problem we had as three engineers, which was that it was really hard to hire engineers. And a lot of the great engineers that we got at the different companies we worked at were through referrals. And so we're like, let's build software to help track and manage referral programs, which is still a valid idea. I think it's probably a better feature of a full ATS applicant tracking system. So like a lever or a greenhouse or um, you know, the play, there's some really big ones. Um, but we didn't do a lot of research on the market. We just solved the problem that we ourselves had. And, you know, so that's how we came up with the idea. And then, you know, it, it, we did a postmortem on it and kind of like, we would have just done more research on it ahead of time. We as engineers wanted to get in there and, and, and start, start building. And so, you know, when we, uh, when I left Facebook and started Doxum with Dave and Tony, I was like, guys, we should be more thoughtful about what we do. Let's not write code on day one because it's tempting to write code, but as soon as you write code, then you're kind of already committing yourself to a particular path. <laughs> Ironically, this happens with pitch text as well. When I talk to entrepreneurs, if they spent too much time making something look pretty, they don't want to go back and redo their pitch deck because it's just like they're too far in the irrational escalation of commitment, which is never ne- not, not necessarily good. So for, for Docsend, we explored a number of ideas. And before building out the concept behind Docsend, we did a lot of research. We went back and looked at like, hey, who started something like this before? And then, you know, my, my belief is that there are, aren't really any new ideas. There's just good timing and good execution. And um, I also ran around and talked to all the other companies I thought should build Docsend. And I was like, hey, why don't you build this concept? And, um, you know, this came from a learning I had at Facebook where, you know, there's a product manager, you know, kind of running product for the pages team. I got introduced to a lot of founders who were kind of curious about what is Facebook doing? I've got an idea in the space. And they were often very cagey with me about their idea, which is from my perspective was kind of silly because I would have been terrible at my job if I was like, oh my God, this entrepreneur without any traction and an idea, it's just such a good idea. Everyone drop what you're doing. We got to go copy this person. You know, <laughs> that's, just like, that's just like really not how it works. The entrepreneur has way more to gain than to lose by trying to get from me like what Facebook is doing and how we're thinking about things. And so I, for Doxon, ran around and kind of tried to get that information and you know people were receptive and said hey we think it's a good concept and you know we might do it someday we're not doing it now we got a couple of talent acquisition offers which was very flattering but had yeah, been through that and we wanted to go build a business and um i also asked hey what were we working on and it was something totally unrelated to the docs end you know other other things they had so i was like okay well i guess you're not going to build it um so that was the general process that we used for for Doxen. I, I do think it's, it's in general good to have some knowledge of the you know space in which you're starting a company either through just a lot of diligence 
or through past experience. So Tony had worked at a startup that ended up selling to, to Box kind of at, at an undergrad and um, you know, I interned at Dropbox and um, you know, generally kind of knew the space and we just, we did a lot of research on it. Um, so, But it wasn't solving a problem you had at the time. It wasn't, it, it was a little bit different. It was so. So Docsend's got twenty three thousand plus customers at this point, and is I, I don't think I can share our stats, but we're we're growing really fast. Um, and uh, you know, so the we describe Docsend as a horizontal product that we market vertically. So some of those applications of Docsend are problems I have. So I'll give an example of one of the earliest use cases for Docsend, which was startup fundraising, which mm-hmm. we've only recently started marketing towards. We originally came out with Docsend. It just said document analytics. That's like all it said on our website. And then we like kind of changed it up to being like sales enablement. And we still have a bunch of like big sales teams, which is great. And then only in 2018 did we kind of change our marketing site to be, you know, Docsend, our brand promises around control. And it's a horizontal technology that we market vertically. But ever since the very beginning, we've had a lot of people use Docsend for fundraising. And that's a need I've personally had. You know, when I was raising money for Pursuit, I put together my pitch deck, I sent it around to people, and I just got crickets back. And it was so hard to raise money. And, and you know, it invariably leaked to competitors and we get it, I get it sent to me by other people being like, hey, just, you know, your deck is getting sent all around. And I was just like, well, that, who, who <laughs> sent it around? I don't know. I've sent it to like 30 people. It could have been any of them. So I was like, there's got to be something better here. And so the one of the initial concepts behind Docsend was just like, hey, be able to create as many links as you want pointing to a document. Each link is unique. Each link can have different settings. And when people look at that document, you can see how long they're reading each page. Not rocket science. Um, I just think that's a service that should exist on the internet. So our first users were you know, friends of mine who were founders who were off raising capital. And I'd say, hey, we don't even have a marketing site for this thing. It's just in beta. It might break just like, you know, it's free. Hey, just use this. It's better than an attachment. People would be like, oh, so, okay, fine, sure. And then you know, people were like, oh, this is quite interesting. I really like getting this. And then they're like, okay, cool. But like the idea was never to build like a vertically integrated solution for fundraising or something like that. The idea was always that Docsend is like pretty widely applicable in terms of like how often this particular set of workflow shows up in like a B2B context. But it was helpful to be guided early on in that I cared about it because I use Docsend for my fundraising. I use Docsend for my investor relations. I use Docsend for all of our sales, our customer success. Like anything we're sending outside of our company is a Docsend link, as it should be, because then we can track it centrally. We understand what versions are, are performing and like where they're going. We can you know have allow lists and make sure they're not you know shared beyond the desired audience. All the data feeds back into Salesforce. So we do use our product a lot. Uh, which has been awesome in terms of understanding, uh, you know, the nuance of it. Um, but that isn't to say that, you know, a lot of people use Docsend in ways that, you know, I, I just don't have those use cases. And so we have built it in such a way that it is extensible beyond the things that we use it for. So it seems like, because the use cases have, have evolved uh, and probably use cases that you, like the, the, the application of something like that has like unlimited use cases. Anytime you, like you just mentioned, anytime you send an email to anybody, there's a, there's a potential use case for Docsend. But Okay, so let me let me ask you this. So how do you at at an early stage when there's so many different ways that you can brand it and market and position it, how did you find product market fit? And then of course to teach people that are listening, how should they look for product market fit when they're early stages to validate the idea? That's a great question, Scott. And you know, there there's a real natural tension between you know, when you're starting a company, it being venture scale and being able to raise money and solving something that is kind of more understandable. <laughs> You know, yeah. like as a, as a founder. And so you're on the one hand, you're like, oh, I got to pitch this thing where, hey, we're going to be a giant company and you take over the world. And like, you know, like, oh, cool. It's like, you know, my my pitch deck needs to be like, we're going to be Amazon, <laughs> you know. But then what you forget <laughs> is that when Amazon started, like they had a real tough time raising money because they were like, we're just going to take used books and sell them online. <laughs> and so, you know, the thing I tell entrepreneurs is like, don't confuse your pitch deck with investors with like what you need to do today to start getting traction. And it, it can't be the case that what you tell investors is a lie, but it is, it is a greater, it, it is greater than what you're currently doing. You can aim small to start. So, you know, for, for, you know, Docsend, you know, a lot of like the kind of guerrilla marketing we did in the first couple of years was like, yeah, we just released it at TechCrunch. We kind of saw, hey, who's using it? Who's liking it? And then, you know, like, how do we document those use cases and then like try to figure it out? And we, we found a really good fit in sales. That's kind of like how we got into the sales enablement game, which is still a great vertical for us. 
Um, but you know, I think so, uh, my advice to founders would be try to find an application of your insight that has enough urgency for a user that they're actually going to care about what you do for them. Because I often see a founder say, Hey, I've identified something. It could be huge. It could be massive. It's going to be everything. It's an API for blah, blah, blah. And then we're using, you know, AI on the back end. And like, okay, I can see how like that, like general differentiated approach to note taking could be interesting and maybe useful, maybe a company, but I was like, to whom is this like so important that like tomorrow they're still going to open up your site? And when people have a difficulty with that, then I'm like, uh oh. And then if they're like, oh yeah, here's an example. I'm like, okay, well then just give me the pitch for that person. Like how does their life change based on like what you're building for them? Are you replacing something? Are you consolidating things? Like, are you saving them time? Are you saving them stress? Like what, what are you doing for them? Because I think in software, one of the things I love about it is that if you solve a small problem, small problem, you're often solving a big problem. Like, you know, a lot of companies that, you know, end up not being big software companies, I think fail on execution or timing, not necessarily that what they're doing isn't extensible if they're at the right place in the right time and, and executing well. So solve something small and then continue to think about like, well, how might this be extensible? Because just like in the example of Amazon, you do something well, it opens up new doors for you. Things you couldn't do on day one, you can do on day five. Once and once you, especially if your business model is SaaS, like you get a flywheel going where that cash flow starts to help fund your business and can help you expand into other things. So Docs Unstarted is just like a way to send and track links to documents. But then over time, we realized, okay, we can get into this like deal room space for sales, or we can get into data rooms. Data rooms is like two and a half billion a year in revenue. It's crazy how big it is, and it's like legacy software. No one especially likes it. It's pretty entrenched. And so, you know, hey, we're like, we can go into the data room market and like, hey, a lot of people use e-signatures as well. Like, let's just get into the e-signature market. And so, you know, as you find success, it opens up new avenues to you. So as a founder, don't necessarily be too concerned around, you know, what you're doing is too tiny. And when you create the pitch for investors, yeah, pitch the vision. Like, where could it go over time? And that's a demonstration of how you could think big. But in terms of the path to get there, like no one goes from like zero to huge overnight. Like there's usually more nuance in the beginning. It's no, it's okay to do unscalable things and aim for like relatively small markets early on. I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, HelloFresh. Now, HelloFresh gives you fresh pre-measured ingredients, mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. I've used HelloFresh for a while. All the ingredients, all the recipes, they're incredible. It saves you tons of time. It lets you skip those trips to the grocery store that you dread. It makes home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That is why it is rated America's number one meal kit. Now, it saves you tons of time and stress. HelloFresh offers convenient, contact-free delivery right to your doorstep for easy home cooking with the fam. Recipes are super easy to follow. Even I can make them quick to make with steps, pictures to guide you along the way. You can also keep the recipe books for later if you just want to remember the delicious thing you just put together. They're really nicely done, so you can use them to remake the meals at a later date. Uh, it cuts out stressful meal planning. It cuts out unnecessary grocery store trips. You can enjoy cooking and get dinner on the table in 30 minutes or less. It's 30% cheaper than shopping at your local grocery store. You skip the checkout lines. You only get the items you need. How often have you planned for a meal? You go to the grocery store. You get all the ingredients. You have tons of leftover, tons of waste. You have things you didn't even use in your main dish that go bad. You have bits of your main dish that go bad because you made too much of it. With HelloFresh, you only get what you need. And all the stuff they give you is high-quality, delicious ingredients. They have set up a special offer for all Success Story podcast listeners. So if you want to try HelloFresh and you've never tried it before, that's cool. You know, sometimes we're a little bit late to the a little bit late to the party. Go to hellofresh.com/successstory16 and use code successstory16 for up to 16 free meals and 3 free gifts. So, I'm just going to say that again because there's a URL you have to go to and there's a code you have to use. HelloFresh.com slash success story 16. And then when you go to that landing page, use the code success story 16 for up to 16 free meals 
and three free gifts. Would you, would you when you're when you were building out Docsend, did you focus on uh, product led growth or finding new uh, like acquisition channels? What was the main the main the main focus, or was it both simultaneously? Well, we, we definitely did a lot of things wrong uh, in Docsend. It's been like a really great learning experience. I think if you talk to most entrepreneurs who had a successful exit or have a successful company that they're running, it, they usually would say, yeah, if I did it over, I could probably do it in half the time. Because, mm -hmm. you know, especially as a, as a founder, you're, you're usually on like the edge of your knowledge. You're kind of pushed to the edge of your comfort zone because you're necessarily working on the things that no one else in your company is an expert on as you try to figure them out. And so for Docsend, we didn't know who the end user was going to be when we launched it originally. It was just document analytics. Yeah. Attachments are bad. People want to see who's reading documents they send. We released it and we just kind of waited to see what happened. And then we, at a certain point, because we raised a series A, so we'd raised like 10 million and we're like, okay, we got to create a business now. Like, unfortunately, every entrepreneur at some point needs to go from fun uh, technology project to real business. And so we spent a couple of years selling up market and sales enablement. And one of my key learnings from, from that, and, and we still do a good job selling up market is that especially with limited resources or relatively small team, you kind of have to decide if you're building for the end user or the economic buyer in B2B software land. And there's a big distinction there. Like if you're selling a thousand seat, 10,000 seat deployment of your software at a company, you're building for the economic buyer. Who is buying your software on behalf of the others? If it's not a great experience for the end user, the economic buyer doesn't really care. Like, does the usability of Salesforce hold them back from selling million dollar deals? Like, no, no, it doesn't. Like, like would making their UI a little more intuitive be helpful to me as an end user? Absolutely, <laughs> you know, but they're building for the economic buyer. They actually did start building for the end user, which is worth noting. So you can go from one to the other. It's usually easier to go from end user to economic buyer, DocuSign being a great example. But for, for DocuSign, we, we started building for the end user and that's been our strength the whole time. Uh, and so even though we you know spent some time selling at market, if we had to make that work, we could, but by building for the end user and also following the strategy of you know horizontal product that we market vertically, um, that works out really well for us because the product spreads awareness of the product. And then the marketing site educates the different ways to use our products. And then that converts really well for us. So I would definitely call that product led growth more so mm -hmm. than like demand, like demand gen doesn't really contribute a lot for us. Um, it's not like channels contributes a huge amount for us. Uh, it's not like we do outbound sales or anything like that. Organic is the number one kind of channel for, for Docsend. Uh, and, and how we gained users. And that's really just us continuing to make the product better and to continue to educate people on like how flexible the technology we've built is and just the number of ways that you can use it. So there's there's a lot that, that goes into that, um, but it always leaves open the option of us going up marketed enterprise, which I assume like, and I'd like to do at some point. I was, I'm, I'm just curious if, if like, cause now we look at, you, you just mentioned a great uh, case study with, with Salesforce. Um, do you think that that only potentially worked because that was more of a blue ocean when Benioff brought Salesforce to market? He really just created he created the category of of cloud. But do you think in a in more of like a red ocean, uh, having um, the end user in mind leads to a quicker ramp? I think that it's something that's new in the last decade, like the possibility for this, just because. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I would dispute that for Salesforce, it was a blue ocean. I think that's a way of painting it historically. Like when they started Salesforce, it wasn't clear that being in the cloud was a differentiator at all. Like if everyone agreed it was a differentiator, the incumbents would have moved faster to it. True, um, true. So like they, as part of their marketing, and I think part of what they were so good at is they, they were able to like really point that out as like, hey, this is a great differentiator. They, they made a market. But, you know, in the early days, yeah, they, they were selling to SMB. They were selling on the edges. Everyone else is pitching enterprise. And by selling down market, it gave them enough time to build a product to start going up market. Same with DocuSign. DocuSign for many, many years was like 50 people and all SMB. And then, you know, now they're 90 plus percent enterprise. So it's morphed pretty quickly into that. Other companies like SurveyMonkey probably should have gone enterprise sooner and, and did not. And so now they're, they're trying to play catch up. Um, other companies like 
uh, you know, SurveyMonkey NeverOne Enterprise. So, you know, there's like no right answer to these these sorts of things. Uh, what is new though, in probably the past like eight, eight, five to 10 years has been how big a company can get only building for the end user without having to go up market to enterprise. Because it was previously thought, sure, you can get a foothold there and then yeah. you go enterprise. And that's the interesting thing. Uh, and if you look at Calendly or Lucidchart or Grammarly, you know, what about MailChimp? MailChimp, yeah, but MailChimp, a great, another great example. Like they, they actually have been around for a very long time. So they were one of the original ones to kind of run that playbook and what an amazing exit for them. Um, and so, yeah, you can build a surprisingly large company by staying dark, down market for a long time. Um, but it, it varies on the company. I think for early stage founders, though, it, it's like, is it a win or not? You know, like no one, you know, especially yeah. for, for the average person, you're like, did you sell your company for 100 million or 10 billion? And like, or it's like, oh, my God, you had a successful company, you know, so most startups fail. And it's like when I talk to founders, I'm like, let's let's be reasonable about, you know, like what you're aiming for here. And usually you're just aiming to, you know, you have an insight, you want to make a successful business and software is fun because it has the unintended consequence of often being much larger than people expected it to be. But I think for the purposes of like, as a, as a founder or advising other founders on like how to get started, you know, it's like kind of those early things. And I think it's okay to just focus on the end user early on. There are enough case studies now where like you can build a great business out of that. And then by the time you have that option of when to go up market or if to go up market, you, you've usually already created a business of some success at that point, which is an amazing milestone. And it's, it's like a privilege to be able to have that conundrum to even think mm -hmm. about at that point. You know, hey, I'm going to raise a series B or C or, you know, I'm going to raise 40 million bucks here. Like how much of that am I going to divert to like building a separate team to go up market? Like, yeah, it's a stressful decision, but like you're already in a position of like you're, you're doing OK. <laughs> yeah. No, it's very good. Okay. I want to, I want to, um, this is, I, I love this and, and I didn't know where this was going to go, but I, I appreciate some of the insights that you're bringing to the table on this. Cause I haven't had this conversation with many other people on the show, but I want to also pull out some, uh, fundraising and investment insights from you. Cause I know that uh, you speak a lot about this. This is obviously something that you've done multiple times. So, um, let's, let's jump into that a little bit. So fundraising tactics. Um, I even heard, uh, on, uh, this week in startups, you're speaking about 18 month uh, fundraising sprints. Um, maybe you want to like dive into first time founder. They want to go raise money. Should they, and how do they do it? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, and there, there are a lot of pieces that go into that. Uh, maybe I'll start with real early stage. Maybe you haven't even created a company yet. Should I create a company? Like, you know, how do I raise money? And, uh, I'll use an example, like my first startup pursuit, like for pursuit, I, I had, you know, I was in business school. So I had like, you know, personal debt for, for that. And, you know, I was like stressed about money and it's like really not a fun spot to be in. So I, I think if you're thinking of starting a company, make sure you have a year of personal runway, like not savings, but just like, you know, you and your co-founders can put in a hundred K each or something like that. There is like a pre-seed now, which is actually great. It's like three or 400 K that you can raise. And you don't have to have necessarily anything to show for it. You can just be a couple people and an idea. And that, that can be great. But that's also kind of expensive. Um, so some founders will skip the pre-seed round. It kind of depends. If if you're, you know, let's just say you, you are going to go uh, do a pre-seed. You've got enough personal runway to last a while, get a co-founder, that sort of stuff, like when, when to raise money. It, it's all about, you know, how much research you've done and what you have to show for it. So, you know, to get a pre-seed round raised, You've got to go research the market. You've got to have the means of building a product. So that means you've got to have, you know, if you're non-technical, go convince someone technical to be your co-founder. Like that's a pretty important thing. You can kind of do that on nights and weekends or go network. Um, let's just say you're, you are stressed about money. Like go save, go, go get a job at a big company. Um, maybe go get a job at a big company in a vertical that you might want to start something in in a few years. Like most founders are, you know, in their 30s or 40s, you don't necessarily have to be in your 20s to start a company. And, you know, you, you can you have a lot of time to go start a company. So anyway, you can you can be patient. And then let's, you know, say you've got a idea, you've got a co-founder, you know, you're even, even able to like self-fund a little bit, make some traction. You know, the question I always ask is like, are you stressed about kind of minutia having to do with like, like either your own personal finances or like buying a whiteboard for your office or, you know, like server costs. And if you can raise money and that helps you focus on your business, you should probably go do that. So for Docsend, 
we didn't need money for ourselves, but you know, we didn't feel comfortable footing the bill going and hiring a team. So we built the first version on our own and we didn't make it look pretty. We just made it functional. And then we did enough like beta testing with people to be like, people like it. Like we can't find a reason why this isn't a great idea. And we think we should go make a company out of it. And so the thinking there was like, let's, because I also learned from Pursuit that, you know, you can drag this out a long time. And a lot of first time founders especially tend to dip their toe in the water with fundraising. And I'm like, no, 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 don't do that. Just, just like, just go all in. See how fast you can get to know. See how many meetings you can line up in a two week window, a month in the future, and get a good read on like, do you have something that's fundable now or not? And if not, that's okay. Try again in three to six months, you know? Uh, if you can afford to wait that long, but try to get to know quickly as opposed to having one-off meetings here and there over a six month mm -hmm. period. So for Doxend, we set up all of our meetings in a two week window. And I was like, if we can raise, awesome. If we can't, we'll just go back to building for another you know, three to six months and then we'll, we'll go try again. And we were, we were fortunate uh, in that Jeff Clavier at Uncork was like, yeah, in, in his mind, this kind of reminded him of SendGrid. He's like, eh, you know, I feel like there are a lot of ways to like not send an attachment. You know, you can use Dropbox for instance or something else like, but you know, SendGrid at the time, that was a really crowded space. And, you know, I think, especially from a VC perspective, like everything is a red ocean because they've kind of seen everything before. He's like, but he was like, yeah, I'd use Docsend. And so, sure, we'll fund it. So, you know, and for us, that, that allowed us to go hire a team, you know, hire, you know, a good designer um, to like invest in like taking the learnings from our beta, putting together a marketing site and then launching it at TechCrunch Disrupt. And so, you know, that, that was really useful. And then that gave us a signal that we raised, uh, you know, Series A. And the idea behind that was like, well, like we're, we're not to like revenue generation yet. Like we need to do some iterating to figure out what is the business, but people clearly like the product. And so, you know, we were fortunate enough to raise, to raise that. So there's kind of like a hurdle at, at each kind of stage, depending on like what you have to show for it. But yeah, I think the, the main things as a founder are like take stock of like what you've learned and the evidence you have that says what you're working on could be a big company and then try to get to know as quickly as possible <laughs> in terms of like getting all the meetings and like, you know, getting all that feedback. And by the way, fundraising is of necessity a depressing process because everyone <laughs> gets almost all no's, you know, it's like, and a founder who successfully raised, you say congratulations to them. And what they don't respond with is, oh, by the way, 95% of my meetings were all like really like harsh no's and they were, you know, really mean to me, but I got one yes. So we were able to raise. It's like, no, they don't tell you that. They just say, yay, we raised, you know? So a lot of times in the middle of fundraising is kind of the lowest point. And then you just, you just need one yes uh, to make it to success. So a lot of times I like, uh, founders who haven't been through the process before, I, I try to like uh, yeah, kind of coach them on like, hey, make sure your spouse knows or your your significant other, or your friends know you're going to go through kind of a rough period here. Your co-founders know, <laughs> you know, just kind of like mentally brace for it because it, it's just like a thing that happens. So let's take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Truebill. So let me ask you a question. How often have you signed up for a free trial and then it converted into a paid subscription and you forgot to cancel it? Or how often have you just not been able to cancel something because the process to cancel that particular you know, monthly service is just horrible and painful and they make you jump through hoops? Truebill is solving this for you. Truebill is letting you fight back against scammy subscription services. Truebill is a new app that helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions that you don't need, you don't want, or you simply forgot about. On average, people save roughly $720 per year with Truebill. And it's honestly because companies make subscriptions difficult to cancel. Truebill makes it incredibly simple. You just link your accounts to Truebill and they cancel everything unwanted with a single click. And if something doesn't cancel automatically, they actually have a concierge service that will follow up and cancel it for you so that you don't have to. Truebill has over 2 million active users and they saved people over $100 million. I used it myself. I saved about 578 bucks, but that's just because I spent so much time in the past having to go back and cancel. I'm sure if I knew about them two, three years ago, it could have saved me like thousands of dollars by now. So stop letting CEOs and bad businesses get rich off you being unable or just forgetting to cancel. Don't fall for subscription scams. Start canceling today with Truebill at truebill.com slash success story. Go right now, truebill.com slash success story. That's truebill.com slash S-U-C-C-E-S-S-S-T-O-R-Y. 
it could save you thousands a year. That's truebill.com slash success story. Take control of your subscription. And do you think that founders should go and uh, get those get those no's ASAP before the like pre-revenue? Or do you think that you should wait till you have uh, revenue to actually go out to, to raise that even Series A? Well, yeah, Series A and C. And Docsend has research on all these different stages. We've tried to quantify yeah. it because, and the, the research that Docsend does on this stuff is just of interest to me personally, because when I was starting Pursuit and I was asking for advice, I got just so much anecdotal advice. I'm like, this is what I did and it worked to do that. Or this is what I did and it didn't work, so don't do that. And I was like, has anyone like done any like kind of research on this? And when I went to <laughs> conferences, it's usually like, like, older venture capitalists who pontificate about like what they like to see in a company. And if you're going to get me to invest, here's my investment philosophy. And it's kind of more geared towards like them pontificating on why they're so brilliant and successful, which, you know, as an entrepreneur in the audience being like, I just need your money is like not necessarily super helpful to me. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't even care if it's your money. I just need someone's money. I'm trying to fundraise here, you know? So for the Docsend research, we try to come at it from the entrepreneur's perspective. And so we break out how series A is different then uh, series seed, then pre-seed and, and so on. Even venture capital fundraising is something we have enough data on to have some interesting takeaways. And it's not so much like what should you do? It's just like common takeaways from all the companies that we can get to participate in this research around like what are common factors of success and failure. And so the narrative that a company tells really depends on what they're doing. Um, and so it's kind of hard to give specifics, which is kind of annoying. And, and to your question around like, is it better to raise like pre-revenue or like pre-launch or the answer is usually like it depends because mm -hmm. uh, that's what I mean by take stock of like what you have to show for yourself kind of as evidence. Like if you're a second time founder, you know, awesome. If you've got a, like a really great track record and career as like a Google machine learning engineer, or you've gone to like name brand schools, you know, these are all things that can count in your favor. If you're you know, if you're like, oh my God, I'm a nobody, I'm non-technical, I have nothing of note on my resume that a venture capitalist would be like, oh, well, at least that's a, you know, impressive something or other, you know, then yeah, maybe you need to have a little bit more traction or revenue or something to show for it. Maybe you have to be a little bit scrappier. Um, and so the answer is it depends. And so that's why, you know, it's just good to like get advice from from folks and, you know, the, the nuance of, of your business. And typically it's easiest if you can get advice from like, if you're raising a seed round series A investors, because they'll be more honest with you, hoping that you'll come back to them later and they'll have an advantage in, in funding your series A, um, as opposed to getting advice from seed investors when you're looking for seed round, like they're just looking at you as like, do I invest or not? So, so get that, um, that advice, but specifically to, you know, do I raise before revenue or after revenue or before launch or after launch? Like the common trade-off is that it's always easier to sell the vision before launch because you can say it's going to be huge. And so you can be persuasive as a founder and just say like, here's all the evidence I had. Docsend raised our seed round before we publicly launched. So we raised our series A before we had any notable revenue. So we decided to you know do those things earlier rather rather than later. But on the other hand, launching early gives you more information on like what is working or not working. So you can kind of get started like actually scaling your business earlier. So there's just tough trade-offs to make for, for all of these decision points. Um, and, and so, you know, it, fundraising, unfortunately, is time as a founder, you don't get back. Like you don't get credit mm -hmm. for the time you spend fundraising. You just get credit for building your company. So fundraising is a necessity, but you kind of want to get it done as early as possible or as fast as possible and kind of get back to, to building your company. Um, you, you, I, know that you've, I know that you've mentioned that um, fundraising and, and like sort of best practices are very case by case. Are there... Are there any, any, anything that, that is more universal that you can sort of help someone walk away with that they can say, listen, if you're fundraising, like this is a best practice based on what I've seen, or there's a probability that if you do this, you're going to end up being more successful. Or is it just really on a case by case and you don't want to commit to any absolutes, which is also fun. No, no, too. no. I, I, I could go through a whole bunch of stuff for you. We could spend a couple hours on. I'm on, sure you could. Uh, so let's do, yeah, let's the, do a few. Let's do a few. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll do a few. Um, the, the first is like people ask, like, do I need a pitch deck or not? And my answer is usually yes. If you're asking that question, yes. People who don't need a pitch deck have enough previous success to and the relationships to just walk in and say, here's generally what I'm doing. Give me money. And like, okay. And people also, for most people, yes. Be like, oh, can I create a video pitch? And I'm like, well, maybe, but like, 
just the way it works, at least in Silicon Valley, you're kind of like professional, you know, software investing, like venture capital is like pitch decks allow investors to be very efficient running through things. And so it's like three to four minutes per visit, like view on average. And so they can just intake a lot of information about what you're doing. So yes, you're probably going to have to create a pitch deck. And then also, by the way, that pitch deck is so helpful when you have to go hire a bunch of people. It's also very helpful in forming like what your sales deck looks like if you're doing B2B or doing any sales. And it's just a really helpful document for what are you doing, like document, like, and then, you know, you're going to iterate on that in, in the future. So, so create a deck um, and, and be thoughtful. It doesn't need to be the world's best designed thing. Um, also in the creation of that deck, keep it simple. The most common mistake I see is that people make what they're doing sound more complicated in hopes that it makes it sound smarter or more defensible. And it does not have that effect. Uh, typically, uh, you know, one of the nice tests of this is like, can you take it to a friend who's not in tech, your parents, an aunt, uncle, uh, and tell them what you're working on and see if they can like repeat it back to you. And even when you're asking like friends for feedback, give them your pitch, show them your deck, give them your elevator pitch, and then ask them like, how would you repeat this back to me? And if they have difficulty with that, that means you got to dumb it down more because the best pitches seem like intuitive, make sense. And they might leave you with questions like, why hasn't that been done before? Or isn't that kind of like blah, blah, blah? And then you can answer and address those things. But if you start the pitch with why is it differentiated, that gets in the way of like, what is it to begin with? And so a lot of founders, especially first-time founders, aren't comfortable dumbing down what they're doing to like that level of simplicity, which I think you kind of have to do uh, in order to get across the point. There are other like best practices around like why now or why you you know, type of things like those aren't obvious questions. Like I see a lot of founders where they're like, well, I don't need to add a why now section or a why now page. It's obvious that this is a thing that, is, that should be done today. And another thing to stress for founders is that nothing is obvious to investors. Like assume no knowledge on the part of an investor. <laughs> Uh, when they're reading your deck. So, you know, like as you go through it, keep an eye out for like, start with the obvious stuff. You know, like, why are you uniquely suited for this? Why is this a thing that has to be done today? Why hasn't it done before? And there are also invariably going to be like holes in your pitch that you know about. So for Doxen, one of the holes in our pitch was like, why doesn't Google just go do this? Or why doesn't Dropbox go do this? And there wasn't a great answer. And for a lot of software, there's not a great answer as to why Google doesn't do it or some big other company. Um, there's been a lot of research around innovators dilemma. And if you've worked at a big company, it becomes a little bit more apparent, like why things just move real slowly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but in terms of like, you know, pitching it and, you know, how to represent that, uh, you know, for, for us, I was like, well, I went and talked to people and they're just not going to build it. So, you know, mm -hmm. for you as a founder, it's okay to leave some things unanswered. Like don't overstress about them. If, you know, the question is like, well, why doesn't Uber do this? It can't be so close to Uber that's like, oh, but they probably will do this. But if it's like, listen, they're focused on these things. There's a risk, but, you know, I've talked to some friends there and I think we've got years in the future to, to do this. And some investors might say, no, like that's too risky. Other investors might be like, I believe you. And I think you've got a great head start on it and we'll back you. So again, you only need one yes. So instead of focusing too much time on like that particular hole in your deck, maybe put more effort into what is your go-to-market? How are you scrappy in the beginning? Or, hey, what's your hiring plan? Or like list all the engineers you know that you're gonna recruit once you, once you get the funding in the front door. So there are those things. I think another common one is like uh, financials. If you're like a seed stage company, don't put financials in there. I think this was like a thing in like the 80s or maybe 90s or something where it's like the business plan thing. And then you had to like have pro forma numbers and like, it, especially early on, like don't do not do that. It, it's, it's like very rare that that needs to be a thing. Like to the extent your business has like uh, cogs or it's like a physical product, you need to demonstrate that you understand kind of like how those things work. But like, you know, if you put financials in there, people will spend a lot of time reading them. And that's not necessarily what you want because usually your financials aren't the bright spot for your startup and anyone can make up math and make it look like a hockey stick. So I'd say, you know, that that's like a made up exercise, like not to be put in there. I'll pause there. There are other things I can go through that are just kind of like, that's, like best things. We'll do, we'll do a part two one time, man. That, I'm yeah, sure you exactly. could go on. <laughs> okay. Um, I want to, uh, I want to, I, I always finish these up with a like really quick rapid fire, but uh, for people that want to connect with you, uh, where should they go? Uh, social website, where do you want to point them? Uh, Twitter is great. Um, so you, you can uh, follow me there, add me there or uh, LinkedIn, or it's just uh, Russ at Dropbox. 
um, okay, is, cool. is the other one. So I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, HubSpot. Now, it's hard to build a business. It's hard to make your dreams a reality when it feels like you're spending all your time working on your CRM, working on mundane admin tasks. But the HubSpot CRM platform is purpose-built for scaling with your business and those big dreams of yours so it's impossible to outgrow. Now, HubSpot has intuitive visual workflows. It has bot builders. The HubSpot CRM platform can automate campaigns across your website, email, social media, digital ads, and chat for clear communication across all your channels, zero mixed messages. With the HubSpot Teams feature, you can organize your account by teams and segment leads, sort through content, and easily view team performance reports and KPI dashboards. And thanks to sequences, you can create flows that automate sales outreach, follow-up, timed personalized emails so you can scale your customer relationships like never before. The HubSpot CRM platform is easy to implement and ready to scale, so dream big. Learn more about the HubSpot CRM platform and how it can help your business grow better at HubSpot.com. All right, I'll put that in the show notes too. Okay, so rapid fire, um, biggest challenge you've had in your life. What was it? How'd you overcome it? Oh, biggest challenge. Oh, um, oh man, that that's a that's a great question. Um, I've been very fortunate in my life. There have been a bunch of challenges. I mean, one with, with docs and was like, we in 2018 needed to, like we were selling at market and, um, you know, it wasn't working super well. And so, you know, we had to kind of pivot our whole marketing site and kind of our go to market, which was, that was, that was a scary, that was a scary year. Um, and so, you Just know, like adapting, though, I guess. adapting to change <laughs> is like one of those things as a founder, like no one else might know about it, but for you, you're stressing out. Um, uh, you know, even in like undergrad, like just figuring out like what, what jobs go get or like work stuff has always been a challenge. I, not, I'm sorry. I'm not able to come up with like anything like specific. That happened no, 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 it's good. Longer, it's good. It, it's, it's good, man. It's, 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 it, it is what it is. It's, it's what you've lived. And it's, that's, that's half the battle. I thought the pivoting and the iterating and leaning into change as a founder, that's pretty damn good. I don't know. Just me. <laughs> that's a good, a good advice. Um, if you could tell, if you could tell your 20 year old self one thing, what would it be? Um, probably just be patient and also keep in touch with people. It's right. interesting, especially being in tech, how long our careers are and how, you know, it's a lot of the same people over and over again. Like it's the same stories being repeated over and over again. It's a really fun industry to be in, but you know, it's a, it's a long-term game. So I would tell my 20 year old self, like, be patient, you'll have time. And the people you're going to school with now are going to do lots of interesting things, make friends, stay in touch. And, you know, your career, your career will happen and, and good things will happen. Good. Um, a book or a podcast or audible or something you'd recommend people go check out. Um, let's see. Uh, a, a book, a man called Ove. I just find that to be like such a, Tear jerker. That was a that was such a good one. Um, like a or a brief history of ne nearly everything I've been told is one of the most difficult books to finish. So I actually found it to be relatively interesting. Uh, so th those are, those are two. Or um, another another book would be uh, you know uh, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman is a great mm -hmm. one. I find behavioral psychology to be so relevant to anything like software related, especially anything product led growth related. Very good. Um, a person that had a major impact on you, who was that? What did they teach you? Oh, there, there have been a lot of people um, uh, over the years. Um, Benjamin Wayne was an independent board member for Dachshund, and he's the CEO at Callisto Media. And he's just such an impressive and smart guy. And I think this is the fifth company he started, and he's the CEO, and he's done B2B and B2C. And just had such an interesting career, but having him on our board for a couple of years was just really fantastic. Cause whenever I was stressing about something in the weeds, he always just had a good way of kind of elevating the conversation and bringing clarity to it in a way that I was just like, man, I want to be that good of an entrepreneur someday or that good of a leader. So <laughs> I learned a ton from him and he's, he's just a great guy. So for any entrepreneurs out there, especially if you get past series A, you'll usually have an open independent board spot. 
and take that seriously. Like it's an opportunity to get a really, really good mentor to get someone really good to come in and really guide you, coach you, help your company a, a tremendous amount. Perfect. And then last question, what does success mean to you? Um, when I interviewed at uh, Harvard Business School, they asked me why I wanted to go because I was an engineer and it's kind of unusual. And uh, I was like, you know, I don't think I'm going to regret like the, the money part or the kind of like opportunity cost. I just think it's going to be an interesting story and I think I'm going to have a good time. So, you know, in terms of my aspirations, I think software is a lot of fun and it's just really interesting. I take a lot of pride in all the people we've hired over the years for Dachshund that we've kind of like started their careers, helped them advance in their careers. And, you know, it's been a really powerful avenue for me to just create a culture and environment that, you know, I like to be a part of. And it's just so cool that we live in a time when, you know, like people can just pick up and start a company and it scales yeah. and, you know, and there's just so much left for software to help with. And there's just so much software left to build. So uh, I just plan to spend my, my career there. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it, each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information. But Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story, too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. 
If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay. And what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch US-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professionals to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text success, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. Thank you so much, Indeed, for sponsoring Success Story. For all business leaders out there, Indeed is a lifesaver. See, we're always driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You're going to ditch the busy work and you're going to use Indeed for scheduling, screening, messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clary. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clary right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clary. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. 